Hello and welcome to What Goes Around and we are really glad to have you here on board and uh, things have been going quite well for the podcast, we're having a lovely time, we've got lots of new subscribers so welcome everyone and uh, what we'd really like to ask you all is that you tell someone about us, spread the word so we can go further and tell more stories and interview more interesting people and talk our old blather on the internet. And get rich and famous. Yeah that too please. (laughs) Don't forget that bit. Like, subscribe, (laughs) send money in the post. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about celebrity deaths or musicians' deaths that you just can't get over, you can't move on from. And we're also going to be talking about what happens to the music after some celebs die, because after all, once it's left to the estate rather than the artist, strange decisions can be made. And I shall be revealing all about how Prince has scored one of the weirdest tie-ups in musical history. Uh, And with the sound of uh, a helicopter becoming part of the day-to-day ambient noise here in East London, uh, I chat to Eamon about the return of raves and uh, his two cents on it because uh, these helicopters are driving me absolutely insane. I've turned into me dad. (laughs) I've turned into your dad. (laughs) You turned me into my dad. (laughs) And of course, our special guest is Miles Chapman, the writer, director and comedic actor behind the Channel 4 series Lee and Dean. And he tells us all about his life growing up in a small village going to the big city to visit his grandparents and discovering the joys of reggae shall we pod let's pod and what goes around let me tell you so this is quite a morbid one to start on but for the time that's in it why not move on to some morbid subject matter um i so 2016 was a shit year, right? In terms of yeah. musical heroes dying and all kinds of other crap that we don't need to go into. <laughs> but but musical heroes dying, that was a pretty and uh, that that was a that was a shocking aspect of 2016, and it just yeah. kept happening right up until George Michael on bloody Christmas Day. Yeah, that um, was like right to the end, wasn't yeah, it? That was yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like how God much spreading more? the evil butter right up to the crust. <laughs> That's a strange analogy. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it like that, but yes, slightly soured butter. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that was an unpleasant experience. And then it was kind of inevitable this year, just because in terms of contemporary music, musicians are, are reaching a certain age and it was mm. inevitable that, that some of them would be vulnerable to COVID. COVID. So uh, yeah. we lost a few greats, Manu Dibango, we lost Bill Withers, obviously, as well. Mm. Um, Tony Allen, uh, some great people passed away. And, you know, pl- being on a radio station that plays this music so often, it's really hard to be like, try and stay upbeat when you're talking about all of these musical heroes. Yeah, especially dying. the ones you've, you've followed for years and years. Oh, yeah. Know. Oh, yeah. But it's, what's been strange to me is that like, I've loved these musicians and they've been like high up in terms of like the hierarchy of my musical heroes for a long, long time. And their music means a lot to me. But there's one death that I just cannot seem to get over. I feel like I'm going to crack up a little bit even talking about it, um, which is the death of John Prine, country singer, country musician, great songwriter. Um, There's just something about about the fact that he has passed away that I just cannot seem to get over. And it's not that I love his music any more than, than Manu Dibango's or, or Tony Allen's, but it's, it's almost like because he wrote such frank and honest 
songs and because he was so true to himself and all of his music, I really feel like I lost a friend. That sounds so... Oh, man. No, I mean, that's what it's all about, though, isn't it? I mean, you sound like a 14-year-old, I but, do. you know, that's all right I'm a 14-year-old. I think we all are. That's Everyone who listens to this podcast, I hope, is basically <laughs> 14 in their own head. Total arrested development. But, but yeah, and, and also, um, because I... I uh, yeah, I mean, because his, there's no... None of his none of his music had any particular, um, you know, it wasn't full of metaphor or anything. He just wrote really frankly about how he was right. feeling and how he observed the world. And that was something that, that was really, really relatable. And also just in terms of his lifestyle, like listening to interviews with him, he was a really laid back guy, really kind of fun loving and like hadn't had a particularly easy life. Like he'd had cancer before and, you know, been a broke musician until he was discovered. Um, yeah. But uh he, he he was just interested in sort of uh, having fun and having an, a nice time and sort of even though the world is on fire, just writing these great observational songs. He was also terrible with money, which I can really relate See, to. That's a great mix, though. I'm not, <laughs> I, that's me. You could be talking about me, you know. Well, this I is like why... to have fun and I'm poor. It's... <laughs> This is why he was a friend to all. And he I remember him talking about how like when he felt like he was writing a great song, um, he would um, already act like the money was in his bank account before it was recorded or <laughs> had been, become popular or anything. And he would already start spending the money, which I can just relate to on every yeah. level. This is yeah. definitely going to make me rich. Time to buy a new car. Um, but yeah, so so I just I, I can't seem to get over it. And I actually I cried when he died. Oh. I cried several times after that. And even just... A couple of weeks ago, I just randomly was going to bed and I started thinking about it. And I'm I'm a pretty tough cookie. Yeah, you're a right bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you, but I just can't, I can't seem to get over it. And I was thinking about, obviously, there's been a, a big Glastonbury retrospective over the past weekend. And I know yeah. you're such a huge Bowie fan. That's immediately going to come up in mm-hmm. this conversation mm-hmm. with me. So, yeah. Um, I think it's interesting because I don't. Yeah, I'm probably going to lose some muso points here, but I wasn't. I wasn't really that aware of him. I, I heard a few things by him, but mm. you know, he was. I, in my mind, he was like in a corner with Warren Zevon and um, that sure. other guy that yeah, writes yeah. honest country songs. Oh, um, your man, <laughs> um, Towns Van Zandt. That's the one, yeah. Towns. And I like him because he he does that thing where it's like really honest, just straight up, like. You know, the most mystical he gets is like, one was a devil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the angel and devil metaphors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of that, isn't Yeah, there? yeah. Fucking Christianity. <laughs> when I get to heaven, I'm going to shake God's hand. Thank him for more blessings than one man can stand. Then I'm going to get a guitar and start a rock and roll band. Check into a swell hotel. Ain't the afterlife grand? And then I'm gonna get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm gonna smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm gonna kiss that pretty girl on the tilt of the world. Cause this old man is going to town. So prior to him dying, I might not even have named him in my top five favorite songwriters. It might not even have occurred to me, um, you mm. know, that he meant that much to me. But there's just there's something about it. I guess my I'm, I'm interested if there are any musicians whose death you just can't get over. You can accept it, but it's still raw even now. Yeah, Bowie, well, am um, I right? 
Uh, yeah, Prince and Bowie basically mm-hmm. are, are my are my two softest points. I think. Yeah, they're the ones where uh, they're just uh, they've got everything for me. Do you know what I mean? They, they both happened incredibly impressionistic times in my life when I was very very young with Bowie, and then I was a teenager with Prince, and. Uh, and I just lived with both of them so much. Mm. And I was so into them, you know. I guess the only other thing, I mean, like, when I was younger, John Lennon was also, mm-hmm. like, a massive thing for me. I shall I shall be pretty, you know, pretty darned rock bottom when Brian Wilson shuffles his small coil. Oh, yeah. But, you know, it is a Bowie and Prince for sure, that's the one. But it's, it's an interesting thing that um, some of the, you know, some of the, the people that pass who maybe you only know one or two songs from and you really feel sorry about them. That's when it gets Mm. me. Mm. Not the ones that I obsess on massively because I'm kind of almost braced for that. But it's just every now and again, you see a a good guy. Do you know what I mean? Like the Manny Domango is just like a really good guy. Do you know what I mean? Doing his thing. He's like, he he makes me happy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, those those ones. And I like a one-hit wonder. I mean, I don't like... I always get this problem when I talk about death. I did it with B.B. Lynch. (laughs) 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 She was talking about liking people that died too. So Mm. you and her ought to get a room. (laughs) That's what Uh, I keep saying to her. She's having none of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I, I think it's a very interesting phenomenon, especially nowadays when it's so easy to, to both let people know and... Uh, have it let be known to you it's really nice it's kind of like um at football grounds when they give the minutes applause do you know mm-hmm. what i mean for uh, for old players i like that some people get a bit like so oh race to see who's gonna say he's dead first <laughs> which i do get <laughs> yeah you know? totally but i think it's a good thing and i think that we should definitely celebrate these people and mm. we should um just you know why not they made us happy for a minute anyone that makes me happy in my life i'll give a minute to and the ones that really don't leave you or the ones that unexpectedly hit you, I guess we all need to kind of think about why that is and why why did this guy mean so much to you? What Maybe you've got something you want to say, do you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's nice to have an outlet like Twitter where you can say in the middle of the night, you know, oh, I really miss John Pride, <laughs> even yeah, though I never yeah, met and him. And have 10 people go, fuck yeah. yeah exactly. Man, that's awful. Also, for all those people who... Um, who are constantly going on about how terrible Twitter is. See how even in death it brings relief. Well, I'll tell you what goes round. More Prince, because I love Prince, and I'm always on about Prince. Tell me more. Um, Well, possibly in the most unexpected licensing news of the year, uh, the Prince estate has struck a deal to license the entire Prince back catalogue to TikTok. What? 
That yeah. Prince would have hated that, and you know it. He is well, rotating in his grave at great <laughs> speed right now. But I think I'm not sure actually because he does have a history of doing um, kind of slightly crap promotions. Because when the record labels. <laughs> Is that what you're filing this under? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, when you know when he um, couldn't get any traction with Warner Brothers, and then he started doing his own thing, but the internet had started. He was finding it difficult to to put out a record, the type of record that he needs, you know, with the promotion mm. he needs. He did do a lot of weird things. He did. He gave away a CD with the mail on Sunday. I remember that. Jesus. And I, yes, I went to that. That was good. Mm. Um, but yeah, so he, he did that, and he did a. Uh, an album for We Transfer, I think it was, or someone like that. Um, it was someone re- something really odd. So he has got a bit of form in this, but I think this is just a little bit further and more left field than I was expecting, really. Because mm. TikTok, I mean, do you TikTok? Um, I, I watch, uh, I don't have TikTok, but I watch a lot of cat videos that come from TikTok. And actually, just to, <laughs> just to, uh, one of my absolute bugbears about this TikTok thing is when people put up cat videos and they put music over the top of it. I want to hear the cat noises. I don't want to hear a clip of annoying pop music. Sorry, carry on about print. All you're going to get now is cat. We need to do the rap <laughs> now. <laughs> that would be fine, I guess. I'd still prefer cat noises. It'd be fine the first time, but, you know, by, yeah. the, by the 15th time. But it's very interesting because... I, to me, TikTok is a, a very young platform. It's like, it's where your teenage um, nieces go to make lip sync videos mm-hmm. and do, do, you know, dance steps and stuff like that. And so I, I'm just wondering, you know, Prince is, is kind of like a, a generation ago, really, to when you consider how fast speed media goes nowadays. Mm. But also, what's... What, What's the fit, right? TikTok. Okay, you've got teenage lip-syncing girls, mm-hmm. right? And now they can um, happily uh, lip-sync to hits like Jack You Off, Sister, Sugar Walls, <laughs> Dirty Mind, Darling Nikki. I mean, he's, he's a cesspit of sexuality, and mm-hmm. you know, in the very best possible way, but we're going to see some weird videos. Well, now, listen, you haven't spoken enough, so... And Frankenstein, what goes around? I never I never stop speaking. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> to be honest. That's true. That's true. Um, well, I don't know if you could hear, but throughout that whole, um, that whole time we were talking about Prince, there's like a helicopter circling all the way above my flat. And like, I mean, it's Hackney. So you yeah. know the drill, constant helicopters yeah. and sirens and whatever. But um, I get the feeling there's probably uh, another illegal rave starting to form over on Hackney Marshes. It's um, all going off, isn't it? They're all over. The shop they're, they're suddenly raving again yeah and I'm, I'm conflicted about it because when you talk about rave culture and you sort of reminisce about its heyday because you're right in the center of things it does sound really appealing and I've even thought about you know maybe we should go out to a rave when everything is kind of uh, <laughs> but wouldn't that you be fun you wouldn't make like... it for the first three hours <laughs> you'd be like where's the, where, are the, where are the sofas Jesus <laughs> does it not we'll have, have sofas <laughs> okay well maybe I'll have to reconsider but but you know I I um, living in Hackney and being and getting older, I'm sort of getting slightly resentful of um, mm. well, all of these uh, illegal raves that are happening because obviously they're socially irresponsible because of COVID. I understand that there's a lot of pent up dancing that needs to be done, but also. 
Hackney Marshes is where I've been going for my daily exercise and it's a it's beautiful I mean it's lovely and it's a wildlife conservation you know all the ducks or the baby moorhens are there and like you know swans nesting there and all kinds of wildlife and so it fucks me off that like groups of kids are getting together um, to fuck the place up and litter and and disturb all of the wildlife and the residents and obviously the police are having to break up all of these raves yeah. and I guess I'm just curious how you feel about if, if you if oh, you respect I the need nice. if you respected the need of these kids to go raving and if you uh, if you understand and you're forgiving or if you feel like it's a totally different ethos to to what you grew up with what where where, well, where on the it, fence you sit you know it is absolutely a different ethos Mm -hmm. because you you can't recreate naivety Mm -hmm. and that's cute but you know everything about it was naive the Mm -hmm. music was naive it was new it was so new we didn't even know what it was you know uh, the culture was new the the way people communicated the mobile phones and stuff Mm -hmm. all new Mm -hmm. you know uh, gatherings of that size to listen to music that strange and then this drug all new, mm. all new, mm. you know. And so part of the brilliance of that whole thing was that the way it exploded and mushroomed out and, you know, no one knew what the heck was going on. And it was truly life changing for most of the people I know who went through it. And I include myself in that. Mm. So there's a big cultural difference. You know, after, what is it, 30 years now? So 30 years later, kids still want to rave. Of course they want to rave. They want to have a good time and good luck to them. And I think... A little bit of that does you good. Mm. But no one likes to see, you know, just plastic bags and poo and glow sticks and <laughs> fucking balloon, little silver balloon things. Yeah, that's the main thing. We were free ravers on the whole. We, we did a few pay raves and had a good time, but we, we did free raves and then we put on our own raves. And I tell you what, we picked up after every single one of them mm. and never left a mess and were very, very conscientious on that front. But like, how did you, I'm curious about this. How did you manage to get yourselves together to pick up your litter being completely mashed up in a field until seven o'clock in the morning? And you're still conscientious enough to pick up after yourselves. Because we wanted to do it again the next week. Uh, Our crew were, were tight like that. We were good. We, you know, we had we had people in the car parks telling people where to park. We had people showing the people the way to the rave. We, you know, we made it known that we were nice people and and we were going to clean up after ourselves and all that sort of mm. stuff. So, you know, and and we meant it. You know, we were we were ecologically minded as well at that stage. Quite a lot of it was, you know, Greenpeace and all that sort of thing. So we weren't. I don't know. It just seems a bit more cynical now. It seems it, it all seems a bit more. Oh, let's just have a horrible <laughs> pay rave, yeah. but illegal and sell loads of stuff. I mean, that, that's it, that's what it reeks of to me. It, lo- it doesn't look like it's born out of love. It looks like it's born out of everyone being in lockdown and gangsters not making their money off off pills. So they're gonna mm. they're gonna be the ones to take the risk because they can afford to lose the sound system. Yeah. But if you if you're a real raver, then you can't afford to lose your decks. Isn't that funny? Because I bet like a lot of these kids probably look back at footage of old raves or see snippets of it or have an idea about what raving was like in the early 90s because you don't hear about the the ethical side of it you know all anyone talks about most of the time is the drugs mm. and, and and in a pejorative that was a bit either that was a really bad thing to do or it was a really great thing to do mm. you know and it, it's not really a proper discussion that actually a lot of it was cultural 
you know, we mm. were changing the way that we interacted, who we interacted with, where we interacted, you know, and th- there was a lot that went along with it that people kind of, they say, oh, it's just hijinks, or they had a, they had a great time, or they're all on drugs, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it changed people. That mm. That was a scene, it was a proper movement, and it changed people's lives. And I just think, you know, doing it again now isn't going to be the the scene the movement you know it's just it's it's much more cynical nowadays because everyone knows what it is and and no one those kids aren't all on the same pill at the same time having the same amazing night do you know what i mean yeah you've i bless you because you've made me feel i was waiting for your nod and now i feel entirely validated about my white heart hatred of these people when i walk past them <laughs> oh no i've become the enemy <laughs> <laughs> no it's good thank you so much for for um justifying that that's going to sustain me that hatred is going to sustain me through many more walks across the marshes i appreciate it safe what we're going to what we're going to what we're going to do right here is go back way back back into time our guest this week is writer, actor and comedian Miles Chapman. Best known for his Channel 4 series Lee and Dean, he has appeared on the big screen with Ricky Gervais in David Brent, Life on the Road. Miles has always had a close relationship with music. A born and bred Londoner, Miles grew up on the sounds of lovers rock and dub music which permeated the Brixton estates where his grandparents live. A keen cook and creative soul, Miles is a music obsessive who can cook up a storm and supply the soundtrack, which is quite a marvellous combination. Welcome to the show, Miles. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Lovely was that reasonably you. accurate? <laughs> I, I think the only thing I would say, I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't born and bred in in London. Is where, well, oh. I, I was. So that, that's fine. It's actually, it makes it a little bit more interesting. I was. How far outside was, were you? Uh, only about twenty-five miles. No, I was born <laughs> and bred in a very sleepy, dull um, Middle England village called Welling, uh, which is oh. about as Tory as they come. And um, mm-hmm. my my grandparents lived in Brixton, so I used to go and stay yeah. with them. You know, over Easter holidays and half terms and and summer holidays and so forth. So that's. That's how I sort of know Brixton well, and uh, that's why it's so sort of fundamental to my sort of growing up years, really. Do you consider yourself so. a Londoner now? Um, I kind of... It's a tainted, it's a double-edged, double-edged kind of title, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't know if that's an insult to proper <laughs> Londoners or not. I don't know. I suppose I do it in a lot. I spent so much of my time in London, not only as a child, but now in my career. You know, a lot of meetings we have are always mm. in and around London. So, yeah, I guess I do. Mm. I find London very much sort of part of my spiritual home sounds a bit wanky but I, you know it does feel like very much part of me london i spent so much time there and have so many memories you know mm. poor Eamon, um, he goes to so much trouble writing these intros and there always I used know. to be one little Let's... colonel <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I didn't, I, when i saw you on the on the youtube video i was, I was thinking oh well he's bored he might because you mentioned brixton and, and your grandparents yeah. asked to me when we talked yeah that's right. and then i thought well he sounds like a right knees up geezer so <laughs> <laughs> I'm not at all. I'm not at all. In fact, I should be. But my um, uh, my dad was actually born in North London. But uh, my mum, mm-hmm. who was born in Brixton, had went to Rada and had, as people did in the 50s and 60s, aspirations to get mm-hmm. out of that, which is mm. quite kind of sad in a way. But that's how people were back then. You know, she wanted to better herself. And to do that was to leave London and to move to the sort of suburbs, Hertfordshire, and carve out a career in 
in um, in acting, which actually never happened because then she had me and I ruined it all. So, <laughs> but look um, at you now; she must well, be proud. <laughs> She's living through you now. Yeah, exactly. Well, there there is, and sadly, my mum died before any of this happened to me. So oh, that makes me. I know it does make me really sad that I can't tell her, but I'm sure she knows. And I always yeah. feel that she may be up there moving the pawns around on the table somehow on the Absolutely. on the checkboard, making it happen. So who That's knows? It. That's who interesting, knows? though, that she moved out of London to pursue yeah. an acting career. Absolutely, it's, isn't it weird? So she, so she, um, not so much pursue, but she, she moved. She wanted to have an acting career, and she moved to well in in the mid 60s um and would travel into london um and she just didn't want to live in london she just wanted to you know live in a a quieter place and um yeah no Mm. you're right that is interesting isn't Mm. it it's uh now everyone just wants to be in London. No, no one. In nineteen sixties, nobody wanted to live in Brixton. Nobody. <laughs> it's true. But look it's true. at it now. It's, it's mad. It's madness. Yeah. Well, it's like you, I, I watched the um, a documentary on Throbbing Gristle. Oh yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They basically, because I, I live sort of on the sort of border between Bethnal Green, Hackney, and mm-hmm. Shoreditch. And they came to Shoreditch, right near where, you know, literally like a road away from where I am now, mm. in the 1970s. And they had a whole warehouse to themselves for no mm. rent whatsoever. You know, and it was just, it was like, there were squats everywhere, there was empty buildings everywhere. And yeah. that's not that long ago, do you know what I mean, no, really? Absolutely. absolutely. I, to be honest, I can't, there, there probably are still a few areas of London, but there's very few now that are really on their uppers. You know, Shoreditch 20 years ago and Hoxton really wasn't a very pleasant area. Now it's thriving, it's brilliant, it's an amazing place, very creative. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Brixton is as well. And there are still pockets of London that aren't particularly nice. Mm. But so much of London now, like Hackney, all those areas have just, just changed so much, you mm. know. It's, um, and it, it's an yeah. interesting thing as well, though, because you can see in areas like Hackney, that there, there's a lot of you know gentrification and good things. Uh, not I'm saying the gentrification is necessarily yeah. a good thing, but you know, let's say things are looking smarter and and right. But then yeah. you know, two streets away, quite often there's another whole world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they are literally, uh, you know, a stone's throw away from you know a rich a rich area and then a poor mm-hmm. area. So you, it's very interesting to see it, how they rub up against each yeah. other. Do you know? And it's interesting, isn't it? I I I I, I could be wrong here, but I feel that. When some when, when things are not quite as um, let's say uh, colourful or savoury, then musically and creatively there's nothing to kick against, and it feels mm. like you know that's when yeah. some of all the good stuff comes out, isn't yeah. it? When uh, and that's not just music, but that's art and and, and uh, writing and, and everything. You know, that's it's it feels like uh, for me anyway, definitely. Yeah, exactly, because it's all a bit London. You know, this is this is my complaint because I'm I'm in Hackney too. I'm. Yeah. hopefully like going to be moving soon but like the whole of London just feels a bit homogenous now it there's does. hardly any of these little yeah. pockets of creative even Hackney Wick I went out on a little recce there yesterday Fish Island which used to be this bohemian you know paradise it's just mm-hmm. new build after new build I know it's I insane know. Um, oh look there's another there's another coffee shop with reclaimed wood panelling on the wall <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh, where have all the coffee shops come from it's like, there's been know. some sort of invasion of coffee shops it, it's just I mean, it is nuts how we, in the in such a relatively short space of time, we've become obsessed with coffee. And I'm, you know, I'm the first to admit I do love a good coffee. There's no two ways about it. It's, it's you then, wonderful. Miles. You're part of it's, the problem. Am I part? Am I part? I'm part, I'm part of the problem um, because it, it tastes wonderful. A really good coffee, and it gives you a pet. There's no two ways about it. But I, yeah. yeah, 
Well, I mean, 25 years ago, I never drank coffee. I was just, I was a tea man, not everyone else in Britain was, you know. Nice, nice cup of tea. And um, now we're all just coffee. Co- I think it's the first, I've read somewhere about six months ago, it's the first time uh, ever in the UK that coffee sales have outsold tea sales. It's just so weird. Yeah, really weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what was it like in Brixton then? Because obviously if you were going to hang out there at your grandparents' house growing yeah. up, Brixton was a very different place then. How, how did it oh, feel it being was. there? Uh, it felt, um, so they, they lived in Water Lane, which is opposite Brockwell Park. It's a lovely, lovely road. And even back in the 70s and 80s, it was a, it was a lovely road. They're sort of a mix of Victorian uh, terraced houses and Edwardian and Victorian villas. A really, really pretty housing. Um, but I, I remember going to Brixton and I loved the fact that it had an edge. I loved the mm. fact that it felt a little bit scary. I loved the fact that when I went to Brixton town with my nan, um, it felt like no other place I'd ever been to. I lived in a sleepy village in Hertfordshire called mm. Welling and you couldn't get a more diametrically opposed place to go and visit than Brixton. And I loved it. You know, I, I um, it felt a little bit scary, which, which, as I say, which, which was kind of part of the buzz. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, in fact, I was I was there in 90, the, 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 the night of the riots. So it was 90, wow. April 1981 and it was part of the Easter holidays. I think it was the Tuesday or the Wednesday of one of the Easter holiday weeks. And I was staying there with my grandparents. And my nan wow, woke me up. What a weekend said, away. <laughs> I know. Woke me up and said, Miles, Miles, look out the bedroom window. Said, and all the sky was just bright orange. Just, wow. And she said, I haven't seen it like that since the Blitz. So, you know, to her, it was like, oh my. And of course, I was, I was sort of 19 when I was 13. I didn't really fully understand what it was about. It's only when I got a bit older that I understood mm. about the SAS laws and how persecuted black people were in Britain. It was utterly, utterly horrendous. Mm. But growing up, I was kind of a bit young to sort of fully understand it, to be, you know, from from uh, sort of uh, a, a middle-class person from Welling Village at 13 years old, probably isn't going to have a huge amount of understanding about it. So, But as I got older, of course, I did. And, um, you know, it, it, it makes it even more of a fascinating place, really. Mm. Um, how did that, how did your sort of, because yeah, that must have been very strange, like going into a sort of alien world from the sleepy yeah. place you're normally living. Mm. How do you think it sort of shaped your, your music taste being exposed to, because I imagine there wasn't much of a music scene in Welling, or maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, I would say little to, I would say little to nothing going, well there was, it was probably like at the local choir. Mm. Uh, in fact, my mum was a member of a, a choir called the Welling Wives. Imagine what that's like. <laughs> that's oh, I don't, I don't. I think so, I've got their first album somewhere. Oh, it's abysmal. Yeah, I mean, it really was very, yeah, there's nothing, um, nothing exciting coming out of Welling Village, mm. um, but yeah, Brixton was uh, totally, totally different to that, and it shaped my sort of musical journey quite early on because I, I was, I was hearing music that I'd never heard before um, anywhere. Mm. I mean, bearing in mind that the only reggae that was really played on, let's say, sort of more commonly um, uh, mined radio stations like Radio One, Radio Two, Capital, whatever was probably something like Bob Marley or Third World mm-hmm. or Eddie Grant. Not the, not the you know, the, the proper roots reggae and lovers rock and dub and all that sort of stuff. Never really got an airing unless you went onto pirate radio or you knew where to go. And this was all, you, you basically experienced this music uh, by wandering around in the city, yeah. I take it. It wasn't, it wasn't like your, your 
your gran and granddad were really no no <laughs> they, with they, the jerk chicken and all that and just no 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 they didn't have tunes. they didn't they didn't have any king tabby in their record collection um, but I, so uh, <laughs> it's like an ambient thing that my, my point is that it, it's a rather than a kind of a specific choice to go after it's like an ambience that came around you absolutely so you know you so it, it's i thought i went to brixton about six months ago maybe a bit more about a year ago and it is sad to, well for me it's sad the way that it's changed its grit has kind of gone i feel and there used to be half at least half a dozen really good record shops in brixton and i counted one mm. one that sold proper reggae you know the rest was all just sort of generic stuff um which was sad but yeah i mean we used to walk down the granville arcade and there'd be three or four uh, reggae shops was one near the east entrance, I think, called Joe's, and that and 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 as you came in, it was the it was the sound of the bass, which I'd never heard before because reggae is fundamentally about the bass. But actually, as I've as I've gone to understand reggae, it's so much more than that, obviously. But mm. um, sonically, reggae I think is probably the best sounding music in the world because it just it's so crisp and clean and clear, mm. and through a proper sound system, you know, dub and reggae sounds unbelievable unbloody believable mm. and um so the first time i ever heard reggae properly was through a sound system you know in a record shop so to me it was just the most incredible thing for me to hear to hear something as it's supposed to be heard as well not through some crappy radio you know it was um it was a massive moment for me it was really transformational mm. hearing yeah we we uh, did a little feature not long back on um joe muggs who wrote a book bass mids tops where a bit basically ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. all about this scene and uh, yeah. and we did discuss quite a bit about how um you know it was about the equipment they had in many ways yeah. you know it's about the fact that they could push that air and they could make that wobble happen you know that informed the artistic choices of the artists. And uh, mm. I think it's interesting that it comes that way around sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, uh, the, I could talk about sound system for ages. I, I just, I love the history of them and everything else. But um, the fact that they're, they're all sort of homemade and the fact that they, they weren't limited to, you know, what ampage certain, um, or what watts certain amps were made. But they, I remember reading somewhere that someone asked for, a, uh, in the early or late 60s, early, seven, uh, early 70s, some asked for a sort of like a, 15,000 watt amp and the guy said that's more than you need to power a cinema he's going no 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 it's fine I knew, I knew. <laughs> are you sure you haven't got it wrong you know it's not 15 watts no 15,000 to power the base so but because I find with sound sensors it's not necessarily how loud it is it's how big it is mm. you can still stand in front of a sound system and to a point have a conversation it's the fullness of the sound the bigger it is the more control you have over it mm. Um, and that's what I found with sound systems, that warmth, that valve, that, and it is about, you know, bass mid tops, they would say tops like lightning, you know, bottoms like thunder. And that's exactly what it is. The clarity of everything across the board is absolutely remarkable. And it sounds amazing. It really, really does. Would I be right in assuming that uh, your phone, one of your phonographic memories might be a reggae track? <laughs> it is. It is a reggae track. Although, interestingly, not what you'd expect. So um, I, 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 I am denied about this because choosing three, three of your favourite records is probably almost impossible. But choosing three songs or records that have been sort of life-changing or life-defining and have set you down 
a route. Okay, you know that you, when you make that decision, you go, that's what I'm into. Mm. That's the thing that lights me up. That's the thing that pushes all my buttons in one go. Wow, I'd never heard that before. And it's the most wonderful feeling when you understand the stuff you're into. And I'm sure everyone gets it like when, if you get into metal, folk or, or, or jazz or whatever. It's just that moment, that light bulb moment. Everything lights up inside. You go, my God, that's it. And so the reggae thing, because I was so young, I, I didn't, I was probably about nine or ten when I first, so on, on along, um, just off Electric Avenue, there's a record shop called, it's gone now, sadly, called um, Desmond's Hip City. What a brilliant name. Desmond's <laughs> Hip City. And I remember that we kept, we used to have to walk past it to, to go in there. And uh, I said to my nan, can I go in? She went, well, if you want. I remember my nan standing outside with the bags. <laughs> and I went in with a pair of shorts, um, sort of open-sewed sandals, only about nine or ten, and stood there and heard this unearthly sound coming out. And uh, there's, there's an old Rasta guy in there, someone with a little trilby on, and I was just standing there, and they were sort of looking at me. And I, uh, they didn't say anything to me. They were quite, you know, it was just a bit of a weird moment. And I didn't know what to do or what to say or didn't know anything really about reggae. So it was a while before I sort of discovered what I liked and what I wanted to buy because I was a bit nervous about it. I was only really young. And I went around a friend's house and uh, he, his dad had bought Signing Off by UB40. It had just come out. And the first track he put on was King. And King's the B-side to Food for Thought, oh. which you know was in the charts. King is a belter of a song. It's absolutely totally wonderful. Agree. Totally oh, my agree. God. They did that on an eight-track in a flat. It, it, the whole album is unbelievable. And that was the moment that I thought, that's what I'm into. Mm. That. It wasn't necessarily the Roots reggae or the, or, or, or the dub or the rockers, which came later. But it was that moment that I heard King that changed everything for me. And it was like, right, that's the route I need to go down. It's a very, very emotional song, King, isn't it? It is. I, I, it's like, absolutely, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. That is, you before you have such a horrible reputation now <laughs> by, yeah. by anyone who likes uh, reggae. But it's hard what, to remember it? it was all right once. It was good. I know. That's the thing I always struggle telling people about you before you and King or their, their first sort of um, so uh, signing off Present Arms and specifically Present Arms in Dub, which is an yeah. incredible album. I always struggle to sort of voice that because when you say you before, we strike away people think red, red wine. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and this saccharine cheesy music selling out stadiums. And that's not why. And as soon as Red Red Wine came out, it, it felt like I'd been jilted. Mm. It felt like I'd known someone and they'd done something to me that I thought, why have you done that? <laughs> that's not you. That's not how I expected you to be. You've really cheated. I really, when Red Red Wine came out, I felt so cheated. Even though I was still into reggae, I felt really cheated. Some, and I don't, you know, it was a weird thing. But yes, King is incredible. It's obviously, as I, you know, when I, I'll be really honest, when I first heard the song, I had no idea what it was about. It took me about six months before I found out it was actually about Martin Luther King. I had no, I just thought it was about King somewhere. Because <laughs> you do when you're about sort of 12, you never yeah. sort of grasp well, the say- lyrics. I had the same thing in that I, I, yeah. I didn't know what it was about, but I could feel the emotion in it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I felt absolutely. that. I felt the way they sang it and the and the moodiness of the music, which yeah. is unusual for, for what I was listening to elsewhere. Mm. You know, it 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 was it was indescribably melancholy. Yeah, it really is. It's that bleak urban reggae that that I loved, and I think I think although I my, my you know latterly my my love of reggae has got much much deeper and much more um, sort of baked into me. There was a sense of it having because there was. 
you know, three or four white members, there was a sense of it sort of resonating slightly more with me because it felt mm. a little bit more accessible maybe because up until then, I really felt like, should I, should I be in these shops at the A11 buying stuff? I don't know what I'm doing, you know. And that's, that's maybe more to do with me, but it just felt somehow a little bit more accessible to me well, that's at a really... that point, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask because I I kind of, um, my exposure to UB40, maybe growing up in a different country and yeah. also, um, you know, I'm 35 now. So I guess what I would have caught them would have been sort of the, the, the tail end of them being quite big. Yeah. Like in yeah. the context of Brixton at that time, were they considered to be a credible band before they went down, you know? Oh, yeah. At, at before the they broke and, your heart. <laughs> no, 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 they really, really were. In fact, um, uh, I think it's going to rain today is filmed. Mm in the Granville Arcade, that's mm. the video. If you, if you put that online, it's on. It's it's them kicking a football up and down the Granville Arcade, which I remember watching. It was on TV at some point, and I'm thinking, oh my God, that's 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 even better than Peter Brixton. <laughs> it you know must have I mean? felt like they were just for you. You're sort of no, entry point into reggae, and now they are in really Brixton. It really felt like that. Mm. That was, that, that's exactly it. It was my entry point. Mm. It, was, it was a little window I found that I crawled in and found this whole world on the other side of it. And it gave me the confidence to sort of search out other stuff. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, it, yeah, I... I that's exactly it. I felt they were just for me. Mm. You know, I really, it's that amazing feeling. You think, how do they know that I, <laughs> that I like, or how do they know that's exactly what I like? It's like as if they've been manufactured just for me. Yeah, you know? It's but, a really weird thing, isn't it? But that's what, what, I mean, that's why it's such a formative time for, yeah. uh, you know, taste making, isn't it? You're kind of early teens, 12, 13 years old, mm -hmm. when you still don't really have the sense that the world doesn't entirely revolve around you. You know, this yeah. music feels like it's speaking to you directly. It's an amazing Absolutely. thing. It, and I bought and I sub so I, I, um, anyway I, I, when I got the album I remember I saved up for the album I had a paper round so I must have been about 12 saved up for the album I got the train down to Welling from Welling North Station with the money that I had and I bought it from our price and I played that I've still got the original album I bought I played it so often I'm surprised there's anything left of it I'm surprised <laughs> it hasn't completely walked away um, yeah just and I love putting it on the original one I had as well because it feels like you know, I bought that in 1980 or 81 and I was at 12 or 13 and thinking, oh, wow, you know, this is this is one of the original pressings. It's gorgeous. It's yeah. a gorgeous thing. thing about were they taken seriously at the time mm. i think when they first showed up what i remember the first times i remember like seeing them in the media and stuff is uh they weren't at all like the um the poppy lovey band that were making no. nice old cover versions they were Absolutely talking not. about serious unemployment it was thatcher's yeah. britain uh, you know one Absolutely. in ten unemployed yeah it was it was miserable music it was suffering it music. really really was it it was proper militant you know, like I say, militant or urban bleak reggae, talking about what they saw around them, what they felt about what was going on around them. And, you know, I understand where, you know, I don't, I think, I don't, I remember reading a, an interview or seeing of the interview, and I don't, I don't think they 
were, were aware that you know Labour Love and UB4 um, and Red Red Wine would have been successful as it was. I don't think even even it was a massive surprise to them because they just wanted to cover all the artists and the songs that they loved growing up. And I kind of I kind of see that. I totally get that. And I, the, the you know a lot of people at the time said, "You're this is a, this is commercial suicide." Mm. And, you know. But not where he got them. I love how you're making excuses for them. Like, they didn't know what they were doing. No, I I remember. They were so naive. They just went went from this. UB44 (laughs) was the last album they bought out that had that edge. Um, And then then about a year, just under, I think it was just just under a year later, Labour of Love came out. And I remember hearing the single for the very first time on the radio and thinking, what's this? Why do you sing about red wine? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> this is so odd, you know. It's it's interesting sometimes when you get a band that um, often it's a pop act or something mm. uh, that that kind of ends up being you know a figure of fun essentially or, yeah, or, or yeah. someone that you you sneer at. But a lot of these bands do an important thing for the for the opening up music to a mainstream and whatever yeah. you say about. Uh, whether UB40 were disgraceful for carrying on doing what they did. The fact is that the first dub album I ever heard was Present Arms in Dub. Yeah. You know, the first sort of proper reggae, like yourself, was signing on. And that these sort of things, they they did open up a world of reggae. Mm-hmm. There's no way, I mean, you were in Brixton going past. Listen, if it was me, I would never would have gone in there. Never would have gone in. Because no. I'd have felt like uh, small and I'd, I wouldn't know what to say and blah, blah, blah. And these things, these little trailblazers, they do open it up to people. And they did. That's exactly what they did. That, and it, the thing right, about yeah. it is, is the people who found reggae through that door, yeah, they can love reggae just as much as someone who found it through you know, King Tubby or whatever. Yeah, it, of course. It, it doesn't matter, yeah. doesn't matter how, how you get there. It's the end of the mm. destination, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, so I was just going to, because I know I've got two other tracks to talk about, haven't I? So we're going to <laughs> waffling on. But I was just going to quickly say, just say so the journey from there really was to get a little bit braver with, with my sort of choices. And, and when you, when Present Arms in Dubs came out, until I was probably about 13 or 14, then I, I kind of knew that dub meant so much to me. And, you know, the sound was just so incredible. And then I, um, I, me- I just remember going to a record shop and it was it was Joe's and I said right because I thought there's going to be s- it's like any genre there's going to be a lot of brilliant stuff and a lot of crap as well you know you have to wade through the stuff to find the good stuff I said look what's one of the um, uh, best dub albums ever made and he said well King Tubby Meets the Rockers Uptown's a really good album and I bought that and that was the first sort of proper dub album I ever bought and uh, that oh. so people talk about see people talk about all oh, the trailblazers like Pink Floyd and all these people making these incredible soundscapes in the studio. No. King Tubby made these on a four or eight track in a tiny shed in the middle of, <laughs> middle of Kingston Town with homemade reverb and delay stuff. It is unbelievable. Yeah, Just we did remarkable. Have, we did have uh, reggae DJ Wrong Tom on the first episode of What yeah. Goes Around and he chose uh, Meet the Rockers Uptown yeah. as the one track to play to anyone to, to we've got a feature called make me believe where we ask people who yeah, are really yeah. into a certain genre to to yeah. share that with people and try and explain what it means to them and that's the track he chose and he we were both like mm, let's go listen to some reggae <laughs> yeah yeah oh it's a, it's okay and then and then and then lastly i got into to lovers rock because that was a very sort of very unique sort of uh british um thing and it was their sort of it was their contribution sort of Reggae, such a massive thing in reggae was Lovers Rock, it was such a uniquely British thing. 
Um, and very much a London thing as well, especially around Brixton. A lot of artists who, who sort of record and lived around Brixton. I, I got massively into that. Um, people like uh, Louisa Marks and Sandra Campbell. There's so, there's so many artists that... Um, and, and YouTube's now just a wonder of the people just uploading really, really obscure and rare lovers oh, yeah. rock now. I'm in my element. You know, it's just there's so much good stuff out there. Um, and I bought a load of vinyl. Annoyingly, I left it around a friend's place uh, years ago and I never got it back. Oh, you're Ooh. joking because that stuff is worth so much money oh, now. Oh, don't. I bought the original. I had to rebuy Hello There by Louisa Marks oh. on our Oak Sound with the dub on the flip. And it cost me 28 quid. <laughs> And it was like, I probably, I probably paid about 75 pence for it or something. Oh, man. I just, I, know. Yeah, I always oh. remember when I worked out, when I worked in a record store, it's like any kind of dub or reggae or lover's rock, seven mm. inches were always kept in the drawer behind the, yeah. behind the desk. Yeah. <laughs> I, that says go. it all, doesn't it? Exactly. Oh, I loved it. And I just love the fact that I love the sort of the home style labels as well. They're obviously mm. done by someone with pen and paper. Yeah. And I love the fact gorgeous. that the labels were always off centre. <laughs> yeah. And I lo- everything about it was gorgeous. <laughs> but none of that mattered because the sonics on the albums, were, on the tracks, were always... Um, there's something about uh, reggae and, and engineers and producers and artists uh, uh, in reggae where the sound is just so incredibly clear and mm. beautiful. Um, yeah, it's remarkable. It's just, yeah, really, really great stuff. Should we move on to your second yeah. selection for your photographic yes. memory? What is it? Uh, right. So my second selection is, um, I, I probably speak for a lot of people that probably listen to this show. I was a big fan of um, John Peel's show mm. uh, on that. I think it was Sunday night I used to listen to it. And I loved his voice. I found it really comforting as a lay in bed. And I used to play a lot of, well, anyway, a lot of crap. And he used to play a lot of brilliant <laughs> stuff. And, uh, you know, it was, and then, and then um, he, he played a track. Uh, called Kiku Buff by the Cocktail Twins mm. and I, I remember and I had the same moment as I had with King so it, it took that long before I had that moment again I was about how old would I have been I would have been about 19 mm. and it just totally blew me away it, it's just the most beautiful sound I'd ever heard even listening to it now puts a lump in my throat and and from based on that I obviously found out as well the Cocktail Twins and I'm now uh, obsessed with the Cocteau Twins and anything that Robin Guthrie does uh, um, since then. And Liz Fraser, perhaps Li- the, uh, yeah. the, the most unique British voice of the last oh, 40, 50 years. Remarkable. Doesn't really sing words, sings sort of um, vowel sounds and, and noises, but that's all the better for that. I just, even their early stuff, which is much more angular and sort of agit-pop and quite goth influence and even punk influence, I still love. But when... when um, Bluebell Knoll came out, this whole new sound of theirs, the Cat Wishes 88 came out, and it was just incredible. I mean, I, I, I just rate them so much. Mm. I think the most amazing band, and Robin Guthrie's solo stuff is absolutely exquisite. 
So um, yeah, that was that was Keep You Buff by the Cocktail Tunes was mm. my next sort of defining track, really. And and what was it? Because obviously with your first selection, mm. it was sort of um, you know you were in Brixton, um, as Eamon put it, you know you had this ambience of sort of reggae around mm. you, and then you came across this this entry point, um, mm. you know. But that was kind of to do with the the context that you were in at the time, and then here you are hearing this track played by John Peel at nineteen, and it's quite unusual that you hear something on the radio where immediately immediately you're like oh my god that's for me you know what was it about what was happening in your life at the time or what you were listening to that made you instantly connect with that well I'd start so around that time I had really started struggling with depression and anxiety and I I Mm. didn't I didn't know what it was for quite a few years what what actually the problem was with me um I said remember this is the late 80s early 90s Mm. it was you must have been medieval times when it came to mental health yeah two two slugs and a um Put an onion up your ass, you'll be fine. You know, it's like <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. You know, it was it was like the dark ages Gosh. compared with now. You think how much we know about mental health now? Still yeah. nowhere near enough. But compared with the late eighties, early nineties, my God, we've moved on yeah. like centuries. And then you're so, in an um, echo chamber as well with UB40 telling you how terrible everything is. I know, I know. <laughs> housewife hooked on Valium. That's me. <laughs> That's me. I'm just not a housewife. Um, so I, I, um, I didn't know what was wrong. And, and um, it was kind of a, a song that sort of sonically spoke to me because it was so beautiful and I felt so down and so horrible inside. And it just felt such a beautiful thing to listen to. And I think that's one of the reasons it spoke to me. Um, and the other reason was because it's just, a, a, you know, an amazing piece of music. But um, um, yeah, it, it's, it was kind of, kind of quite a pivotal moment in my life when my life started to change maybe not for the better for quite a while mm. so things started to sort of go a little bit south for me really I think it's a an you weren't expecting thing. that were you sorry <laughs> no, it's oh, going no, that's, that's all welcome that's all welcome <laughs> yeah. we'll take that that's what we're here we're going, happy sad whatever it's about how the music yeah, yeah, hits yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm interested um because uh the Cocteau Twins are very unusual uh, yeah, they are. to to the, a they've got a, an amazing sound of their own um, but th- for them to hit you at 19 um, mm. a- a- and and take you away to that extent, it's interesting because most of the time when um, someone gets grabbed by a new sound or a, a new album by someone, it-, it quite often it's to do with the lyrics and how they, um, you know, relate to the fact, oh, I'm a yeah. star man. I get that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I- I'm a star man too. Or, you know, like Guns yeah. of Brixton. Yeah, I'm going to fight like The Clash. Yeah. But the Cocteau Twins are offering this detached surrealness mm. that doesn't tell the listener what the song is. It allows the listener to either make up what they want the song to be or to really try and decode that song. But there's no yeah. easy answer with that, is there? No, no there isn't. And, and that's an interesting thing. I, my, my music taste has always, always been driven by melody and not by lyrics. The lyrics have always come second it's you know mm. that's what grabs me it's 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 the sound it's the melody it's the feel of it that just encompasses me before the lyric and the lyrics come secondly but like you say with with the cocktail twins there were really no lyrics it was just sort of vowel sounds and uh so that was that was interesting i, I don't think i tried to decode it they just created a moment if if you know if i lay there and listen to kiku buff it takes me somewhere really beautiful in my body and i feel wonderful um, yeah, and, it, I, and that it, that you cannot replace that with anything. And I, I you know, to me, it was, well, yeah, I, 
Yeah, so it, you're right. There was no lyrics. I, I didn't. I didn't feel I had to code it. It was kind of quite binary for me. It was like this is a beautiful piece of music that I can, I can just enjoy time and time and time again. You know. Mm. I think their sound is very alien as well in itself. You mm -hmm. know, like uh, like I say, especially the early stuff is very angular and. You know, there's some quite weird droney things going on in yeah. Victoria Land. My favourite, Treasure, yep. um, with incredible. Evo and yeah. all those beautiful, beautiful tracks. Um, but the, what they what they offered to me when I, I got into them was um, pure blissful escape. Yeah, that's exactly I didn't, it. That's I didn't it. really have to understand what they were saying. No. I didn't really have to have a statement or if someone asked yeah. me why do you like it i didn't I, not that anyone did because no one else liked it around me mm. but um but it was pure escapism because it, it didn't sound like anything else it certainly wasn't of this earth yeah. and it wasn't of my town or mm -hmm. or even the cultures that were going on around yeah. me it, it yeah. really was it, it is so john peel in that way and that he's mm -hmm. just be able to find music that didn't seem to belong anywhere in the material world. Absolutely, and and there was no there's no reference point to me for the Cocktail Twins at all to say they sound a bit like or they are like you know this band. They just were completely unique mm. and and beautifully unique. Why no one had ever thought of making music like that before beggars belief because it's it's so gorgeous. <laughs> Oh my God, he's, he's to me, you know, obviously Liz Fraser incredible, but he's a hero creating those melodic landscapes. They're just blow your mind. I mean, have you ever listened to any of his solo stuff? It's just, oh my goodness, me. Yeah, they're, 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 to oh. be honest, there were a few wonderful Cocteau Twins off spins. I, I, they yeah. did a wonderful album with um, Harold Budd. Harold Budd, absolutely. Which I was just about to is say him. Just yeah. absolutely one of the nicest ambient experiences you could ever have. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember when I was. That probably came out when I was nineteen or so, yeah. And uh, guy, it was just like a warm bath of of just <laughs> just getting I away know, from everything. It's just, and it had a sort of sense of intelligence and honesty about it as well. You could really feel that he was just trying to create something so beautiful, and it wasn't lazy. But it was just oh, there's, there's an album, my favourite album by him as well. It's an album called Fortune, which is absolutely and there's a particular track on there called Perfume and Youth, which is. I don't think you can get a more beautiful piece of music than that, personally. Um, it's just staggering. Um, and I will ram it down anyone's throat. <laughs> this is beautiful. <laughs> you, you, think you, know, you think you know nice music. Listen to Robin Guthrie. What's the matter? You're a bloody idiot. You listen to Robin Guthrie. But I do. I get, I get quite animated about it. I, well, yeah, because... It's an interesting idea, actually, because I, I was just wondering whether, whether it was a a personal private pleasure for you? I mean, did you have mates that were into it as well? No, did you, not did at you... all. I had a couple of, I had a mate, uh, a couple of mates who sort of, oh, well, one mate who really loved the Cocktail Twins, a couple of mates, oh, 
not really my thing. Can't really dance to it. But that's really not the point, <laughs> is it? You, don't, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I saw them. Thank God, I managed to see him live twice. So Did, I saw them. Oh, um, I'm so jealous. Yeah, Brix, I saw him in Brixton Academy in 1990, which was uh, amazing. And then I saw them at the Royal Festival Hall in 96, just oh, before beautiful. they split. So, oh, wow. amazing. Do you? And, uh, think- yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, do you find as well, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, the music speaking to you at a time in your life when you're struggling with mental health and then it was a mm. bit, it kind of went downhill from there. I yeah. often find that music feels, you know, I've, I, I'm a, usually like a hysterically upbeat, optimistic person, much to the annoyance of a lot of people around me usually. Mm. But like I've had periods in my life, you know, where I've struggled with my mental health, had depression. And the yeah. one thing I kind of miss about those times is that um, music seems to hit me a lot more viscerally at times yeah, when I've been it really sad. Does. Yeah. And in, interestingly, music will affect me either way. So when I when I'm in that space, it will either affect me in a in a in a positive way. You know, when you sort of like feel very emotional, but in a positive mm, way. Mm. You know, it's sort of like if I listen to Robin Guthrie or the Cocktails, it affects me like that. But then on the other hand, songs that I hate, and believe me, I've got billions of them, um, will put me in the foulest <laughs> mood of life. In fact, I did a podcast a little while ago called um, uh, Desert Island Dicks, and it asks you about <laughs> the people you would hate to be with on a desert and the music you'd hate oh, to man. have. It's really interesting. I've got, in fact, we did, we had, um, uh, we had a bit of a lads weekend away, and we all had to put our three tacks on Spotify that we all hate, and we had to explain why we hate them. And you're not allowed to put on there something like... Um, um, the uh, like crazy frog the, or something. Yeah, or something because that's obvious. Yeah, but it has to be true. Oh, why do you hate that? And so it's a really. In, you should do it. It's great. It's I really could literally, I, if I started talking about music I hated, I would literally never stop. <laughs> no, you know <laughs> one of those songs where you hear it on the radio, you go, oh, I've got to switch it, I've got to Because oh I literally, I can feel my mood just changing immediately, getting into the foulest of moods. You the know, the so song that just off. popped up was King of Rock and Roll by Prefab Sprayed. It makes me feel physically sick just thinking about that song. Uh, oh <laughs> my God. I cannot believe you've just said that because my next choice is my <laughs> fuck off, really? I'm not, <laughs> fuck off, I'm not joking. I'm I am up, not I'm joking. I'm I am not joking. So, that, well, that that's, you couldn't get a better segue than that. Yeah, let's you? segue with that. Let's Man go with that. Alive. I had things I was going to say, but I'm not going to say them now. Let's just move maybe on. You'll right. change my, maybe you'll change my whole No, feeling. so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to change your mind because I agree with you about that track. Okay, good. Because okay. that, that to me, so, uh, Eamon, are you a fan of um, Prefab Sprout? Yeah, I'm much more a Steve McQueen era. Yes, same here. So um, uh, King of Rock and Roll is Prefab Sprout's red, red wine, really, let's be honest. Um, I'm relieved to hear uh, that. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Um, And that's, you know, sometimes, I remember going to see them live at Hammersmith Odeon. It was just full of suits going, oh, won't do the King of Rock and Roll. As soon as they played it, some just went home and didn't understand. (laughs) Oh, no. You know, ah, ridiculous. Uh, Anyway, so, um, yeah, so my next next choice... um, was a little bit later on, uh, well, a bit earlier than that. So I should have done this um, uh, by date. Sorry, that's, although, when did I hear it? Probably about 90, but about maybe just after, actually. I came late to it, mm. came late to it. Um, and that, I heard the King of Rock and Roll, didn't like that at all. And then I heard on, I can't remember which show it was, and I heard um, When Love Breaks Down. And for some oh. reason, I don't know why, I must have missed that first time round. God alone knows how. And I heard it and I thought, my God, what an amazing... I had that moment again. Mm. That sort of incredible moment of chord structure and melody in your living And then I got obsessed with Prefab Sprout. And that's kind of been my next, <laughs> my next choice. My love and I 
songs steve mcqueen you know the list goes on one of the things that kind of uh when i'm listening to you talk about it um that kind of pulls these tracks together for me is i think you you have an ear for production it seems yeah, you know like uh, like so reggae like you're enthusing about the yeah. um, the separation of the frequencies and how clean mm-hmm. it can sound at the top and how warm at the bottom you know yeah and then you've got the cocktail twins who really make this um fantastic world in their sound that doesn't really mm-hmm. sound like anything and again, with Prefab Sprout, uh, you've got Thomas Dolby mixing the album. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, and you know his his attention to detail and the and the, the for the time that the Prefab Sprouts worked with Thomas Dolby was way ahead of of the recording techniques of many of their peers. I think. Oh, I I totally agree. I mean, you know, um, Steve McQueen and Langley Parts of Memphis. You know, I know King of Rock and Roll. It's on that album, but there's some also there's some belters on that album as well, some great tracks on that album. But Langley Parts of Memphis specifically, the production on that is just insane. It's just perfect. It's so full, it's so rich, it's so clear. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I remember Paddy McAloon saying, you know, I just give him the raw materials and he makes the magic, really. Well, yeah. I kind of disagree with that because I think Paddy's uh, yeah, there's magic in all of it. Oh, he, what? You, you, I mean, you can't he, polish a, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if if you listen to the acoustic version, there's a, an acoustic version of Steve McQueen came out about about ten years ago now, I think, and just the stripped down versions of those songs are still remarkable. And with the Cocteau Twins, obviously, it was like the moment that you heard it was quite a seminal moment. Where, where did you mm-hmm. where did you first hear this Prefab Sprite track? Uh, I was, was laughing. It was on. The, I was on the bus coming back from college, Aww. and uh, on a coach, and the bloke just put it was on the radio. Ah. Well, there you go. Literally that's, that's like first, that. That's how the first I'm, choice from a bus. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. So how I missed it first time round remains a bit of a mystery. Maybe I did hear it or maybe I'd only heard a bit of it. I don't know. So why do you uh, think I, it I, hit I you at that time? Interesting. Um, because like, it wasn't a current a bit, song and it, no. it, it, it's kind of they're low key do you know what I mean they're not mm. they're not apart from the hot dog jumping frog let's yeah. just let's just throw that in the bin now right we're done with that yeah. one we won't mention it again <laughs> oh that's but validating right <laughs> maybe it's the, maybe, maybe do you know for, for me it's it, do you know for me and I'm, I'm I'm a very 
odd when it comes to music. Sometimes it's sometimes it's the whole. You like this at all? Sometimes it's the whole track. Sometimes I like just parts of tracks. So mm. I will just play a bit of a song that I love, and the rest of it I can take or leave. Mm. I'm very mm. odd like that. I'm very much sort of, very much chord driven. There are obviously some very perfect songs. Um, it's that that bit in, in in when love breaks down after he says the sweet September rain. You get that ba 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 ba. It's so beautiful. And I think maybe that's what caught my ears at the time. Mm. It's things that make me sort of get a lump in my throat and feel a little bit shivery and feel a bit a, a sort of other. Mm. That's sort of the sort of music that catches me. When um, was it? Where, when when were you on this bus? What was the? Where were you going? Yeah, where were you going? <laughs> well, yeah. I need to, I need you're nosy, aren't you? Right. <laughs> that's my job. I just, I just want to find out if you're on the 55 route or whether yeah, you're yeah. going further south. <laughs> yeah. I was coming home from Ware College. I was coming home from Ware College, and there was a bus. There was a bus to Stevenage because yeah. I had to get the bus to Stevenage and the bus from Stevenage to Welling. And this must have and, been um, a time then when you really had to like, if the radio announcer was you know playing it, you had to really pay attention at the end oh, of the yeah. track because it's I, not I, like I, you no, could. I, Google it or you know. I had no idea it was yeah. I had no idea it was at all and then just by chance I went to a friend's house he had I've mentioned about um prefab sprout mm-hmm. the, I, I come to the conversation he came out he said have you heard their album I said well no he said I've got their album and he had Steve McQueen he was on there, and that was it serendipity You know those that you must you must have a, a musical taste or albums you've bought or artists that you've bought. You thought I, I really must like these because mm. yeah, that's a sort Nick of Nick Cave for me. I I, I tried very Same hard it. to get Poor Nick Cave. Leonard Cohen. Poor Can't man's Leonard it. Cohen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Man's yeah. Man's so right, Nick Cave. <laughs> Nick Cave, Leonard Cohen. Bob Dylan, no, no. You don't no like Co- you don't like Bob Dylan. No, can't yes. I thought we were stay, on a level. Stay calm, man. Don't start. Oh, don't start. Him. <laughs> he's just, he just, uh, you know, he just, he's just a bloody miserable man, isn't he? I don't know. I just it says maybe, the UB40 maybe. Oh, have, have, <laughs> have I? Has this all been going well to the last minute? <laughs> I, really I was going to say, mate. remember, Anne, safe space, safe space podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. No, I mean, but it's Bob Dylan. But no, yeah, but but it's it's such a mixture. It's such a mixture of different things isn't it it's such a weird mystical thing that yeah. makes one artist appeal and one mm. artist not appeal and there's so many people who people love that I don't get and, and vice versa and stuff yeah. you know and and yeah I'm, I'm it is I'm it's you. music is such an interesting uh, mad mad thing isn't it how uh, it is the most uh, subjective mm. art ever I think you know it's just like you say one person will just adore someone um, mm. and others will just I just don't you know that maybe that's a harsh thing to say, but it's you know, it's music is subjective, isn't it? And well, listen, we're, we're throwing um, it all out now. I, I, yeah, before I know. You go, I think I think I've, I've got to just find it because we we found out what um, Anne thinks. Um, it's definitely hot dog jumping frog uh, Albuquerque <laughs> that goes in the bin. For me, it's Toto Africa. I can't be doing with that. That's oh, yeah. that. Oh, that no. <laughs> die right. fire. Okay. Do, do you want to hear mine? Because I've got so many. Please, but I want to hear one really good one. Yeah. I want one that's going to okay. put the taste Are in you ready? Go on. Jack and Diane, John Mellencamp. Ooh, Ooh, wow. Rocky, Rocky American vibe. But you know what? That's interesting because you said that like lyrics don't mean a lot to you. And like that is mm. really kind of like, it's more about the story, isn't it? Than the music. 
it, it is, and I maybe that's maybe one of the reasons I don't like it. Mm, but I tell you, the main reason I don't like it mm. is because he sings loud, <laughs> and it really annoys me. Why you don't me. like Bob Dylan as well? Probably I can see the connection there. Probably maybe there's a there's a little bit of. Um, a connection there. Uh, uh, I, do you know what? This, this could be a whole new podcast about songs I hate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've got so many. And it's interesting. You can get just, if not more, animated about songs you hate more than ones you love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really yeah, interesting. Yeah. You know. All this music that we've all been listening to, for good or for bad, shows how powerful music can be mm-hmm. and how much it can affect you, both uh, rile you up and comfort you at the same time. And that's yeah, why we love this absolutely. crazy medium. Yeah, 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 indeed. Fabulous having you on today. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. It's been quite cathartic. Could not believe it when you said three frames sprout. <laughs> I don't believe you've just said that's hilarious. That is absolutely hilarious. I'm so glad yeah. we're on the same page about it, though, because yeah. otherwise I would have been Whoa, questioning. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Eamon, that was lovely. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for yeah, sharing really your photographic memories with us. And yeah, maybe we should do a, a revisit um, and uh, talk about the tracks we hate. Songs yeah. we hate that have shaped us. <laughs> I remember. 